Um, we've got some feedback. Really? Feedback? Hmm. Follow yeah. up? Follow up? Feedback? <clears throat> I always call it follow up. I think that we, we would be remiss not to acknowledge the um, originator of the term. I don't know if you guys listened to John Syracuse's Hypercritical. Yes, I one, one of my favourite all-time podcasts. And um, I think in reflection, maybe it was the final episode, uh, he was thinking about things he was proud of and uh, coining the phrase follow-up or at least uh, originating the popular idea of having follow-up at the start of every podcast episode was something that he uh, was happy about. Yep. So um, maybe we should call this segment the John Syracuse so Memorial. John Syracuse invented follow-up. Yes, in the sense of starting an episode of a podcast with a segment called follow-up and uh, following up. Like having a reoccurring feature. Yeah. And he acknowledges that he may not have invented it, but that uh, he lays claim to having popularized it after he started doing it on hypercritical others like uh, Marco who did on Building Out Wise. There was a few places. A lot of places do follow up these days. Certainly, that's where I came across it, so I'm happy to acknowledge, tip my hat to John Syracuse. <coughs> um, so we got we got some feedback on the emails from, and I, look, he didn't say whether we can use his name, but Ben in Canberra. Um, he was commenting on our discussion, so last time we talked about Holler Unblocker. Yep. I can't remember who mentioned it. I mentioned it. There you go. So uh, his question for that was how is a free plugin going to pay for its bandwidth? So- well, the way that it works is that um, it's actually very similar to BitTorrent in the way in that it doesn't have a central server for everything. So you're not actually hooking up to a computer that's sitting in the state somewhere. You're hooking up to another user's computer who is, and it's all kind of shared. Right. So it's peer to peer. So you're stealing yeah. someone else's bandwidth using. Yeah. So typically what happens is uh, it, it has that, so that built into it, but also caches a lot of stuff. So if you're using it and you reload the screen and like reload the video or whatever, it will, it will uh, use, access a cached version of it so that the bandwidth is much uh, less. So it's a, it's a plug-in for your web browser though, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So how does, um, how does it act as a sort of peer-to-peer client as a plug-in for a web browser, are you are people only able to use your bandwidth whilst you're actually using that plugin yourself to look at something else, or is there a back-end service that runs all the time? I don't think there's a back-end service at all. Um, everything runs like I, they've got. They do have a, 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 um, a whole bunch of information about about it, about how it works on their on their website. If you follow the link that I put into the uh, show notes last week. It actually says how is whole of free, and it doesn't have any servers at all. Um, everybody is you know, sharing sharing their resu- their resources, uh, which means that they don't actually have to charge anything because they don't have any you know server requirements or anything like that. It doesn't it doesn't access everything. It just only does the pages that it specifically unblocks, and there's a list of uh, a short list of those. Um, but yeah, everything is buffered, and uh, everything is. Uh, Caged so that, like, on um, so that you're not loading through everybody's uh, internet connection. Yeah. Okay. Oh, well, that addresses that that question because there's so many startups these days that have the business model of trying to acquire as many users as quickly as possible yeah. without uh, figuring out the question of how they're going to 
you cover their costs, let alone make a profit. Yeah. Well, if you have any, if if anybody has any questions about uh, about Hola, I still don't know how to pronounce it. Uh, Hola. Hola. Uh, you can visit their website. Uh, they have a an FAQ uh, if you if you just browse through the, through the site, and uh, it it will uh, pretty much answer any question that you can come at it with. Uh, in far more succinctly than I can on an hour-long podcast episode. Yeah, which we're trying to keep short, right? Yeah. So, um, so Ben's got a bunch of other feedback as well, but um, he also mentioned about build numbers. So last last time we were talking about um, right automating the creation of build numbers for versions of your app that you're distributing, uh, and he uh, he says uh, you are making your life hard with hex numbers, Jelly. I uh, I changed that actually a couple of days after we recorded. I have gone to a method that I didn't change it much. Um, I'd already had in the app set up a because I've got a I've got a method in my app delegate which I use to call the to to find out the build number. Uh, and so in that method, what I did was I wrapped it uh, wrapped the the, the fetching of the property uh, in a method that encodes it in hex and then when in the actual iteration cycle I only iterate it in decimal now so when you're in the app you get the benefit of looking at a very pretty hex number but it's a but it's actually on the back end it's a decimal number which means that in hockey forgetting words uh, in hockey it shows up as a decimal number which right. means that I don't have any problems anymore Except now you've got this mapping between if a user reports an issue in a hex build, you could do that. Which which hockey decimal build does that map to? Yeah, but you can actually. I think you can actually um, map that sort of stuff pretty pretty easily. It sounds much easier now. It's well, at least I'm not having to every time I run like like build and run. I'm not getting a thing saying, "Oh, yeah, there's a there's a new build available." And so, ah, oh, no, there's not. It's it's an old build. Stop stop pestering me. <laughs> I've gone the other way. I've I've reverted to just having my build number match my main version number. Oh right. So yeah. I tried having no build number at all, and it would not accept that. So so you don't you don't auto increment your build numbers at all. You just Seem like too much effort with Git. It's always updating your Xcode project. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So just every time because you change the little number. So, yeah, you could probably ignore. You, you what you do is uh, generally what I I've been told is the best solution is to have it as a property, like a uh, like a static property in a file of its own, like its own file. So mm. all it does is updates the contents of that file with the new the new build number, and then you can tell Git to ignore. And then that you can file, tell, yeah, you can ignore that particular file, and yeah. that way, if it's not. Uh, if it doesn't exist on you know, on your computer when you uh, first like install the project, I guess um, it will create that file anyway for you and load up and start the build number process again. So that's one way of, of doing it. Otherwise, you can update. Which I, what I do is I update the actual um, I update the uh, the plist file with directly uh, with plist buddy. I think it's called. All right. It's a it's a uh, a uh, terminal thing where you can I don't know GUI free I don't know I can't remember the word for it I'm 
Forgetting Command line, line utility. There we go. Command line utility. Thank you. Thank you, Jake. That's right. I've had my coffee this morning. <clears throat> I don't drink coffee anymore. <laughs> There's your problem. That's my problem. Uh, so it's a command line utility that allows you to update plist files uh, by calling everything as properties and stuff like that. Uh, and I've, you know, I've got it set up so that it updates that property in the plist file automatically. Yeah. Um, and I generally, I don't go building unless I'm going to be uh, actually updating something. So I just leave it until I've, uh, I leave Git until I'm ready to yeah, check so something in. I've got mine my auto increment as part of just the archive uh, right I can never remember the expert terminology scheme scheme is it a scheme is archive a scheme or is it a no, phase or is it's it a, a it's a part of a scheme right that the archive way. part of the scheme I've got a post build script that as part of an archive it updates just a single file that's sitting there with the build number in it and um, generally I would be yeah pushing changes to get each time I archive a, a build that I'm sending out for review, I could kind of tag it as this is build, whatever. So I kind of, I don't find it an issue that that file keeps changing. It's just only when I archive. So when I'm doing build and run all the time, it's the same. Okay. See, yeah. I build it. I, I update that number every time I build. Right. Every time. Yeah. Jeez, uh, I build so I, if I, a zillion million times a day. Like I, I'm not yeah, so I, rights, like yeah, that's why my number has gone so high. Like it's where I've gone. This I've is why I need to go hex. You would have to kind of go to whatever's after hex base, you know, thirty-two. Maybe, maybe. But at this stage, I don't. Thankfully, yeah. So, um, Avad, have you got any more follow-up? I've got a little bit more. Uh, I don't have any more. No. Okay. But, well, I've got some more follow-up. Um, last time we spoke about Nim, we we're talking about different open source projects mm-hmm. you use and mm-hmm. I mentioned Nimbus um, I just want to follow up with the fact that I still think it's awesome <laughs> so between, between last time and now I've found yet another reason to use Nimbus okay um, and one of the things I think I mentioned was its modularity the fact that yeah, in kind of reaction to the the unwieldy nature of 320 or whatever it was replacing um, that one of the core ideas behind Nimbus is to make it really modular so you can just use the pieces that you need. Mm-hmm. And in the last couple of weeks, I was working on an app for a client um, that provided a bunch of information and then you could link out to a website for more information. Um, and they reviewed it and said, oh, don't really want to send people out of the app so early on as frequently as possible. Could we display that extra information within the app? And only if they really want to keep browsing further beyond the first web page we're looking at, um, could we open up Safari? I'm like, yeah, sure. Okay, I'm at a day or so before this uh, app needed to be finished and um, for an event where lots of high-profile politicians would be looking at it. Yep. Um, so I uh, had I thought, well, look, I could write a web, just use a web view and write a web view, like a view custom view controller that had a web view uh, and had code that acted as the web view delegate and responded to, you know, provided a basic navigation so that you could show progress when the page was loading and all of that. Um, But it dawned on me that that would be the sort of thing that surely already exists, and of course it does, and uh, there's a version of it in Nimbus. So um, Nimbus has a thing called Web Controller. It's one of its modules. And if you want to use uh, Web Controller, it's exactly that. It's a view controller that contains a web view. Um, it'll automatically fill the 
the view with the web view and have a toolbar down the bottom that provides back and forward buttons and reload and will display the title of whatever content you're loading in the toolbar at the top. Um, and so I was able to use CocoaPods to just say I want to include Nimbus's web controller. Um, and in about two minutes, I had that added to my app. Um, the Nimbus web controller, you just give it the URL of the page you want to display. It does everything. Nice. So uh, I quite like that. Um, but that kind of brings up CocoaPods. So I don't know if you guys want to quickly discuss CocoaPods before we move on. Yeah, well, I mean, I've, I've heard a little bit about CocoaPods, but I've never used it. Do you want to... So this was kind of the first time I've used it again recently. I, I had a look at it when it first came out, and I liked the idea. Um, but I was a bit wary of it because it messes with stuff, and I'm always wary of things. I kind of... I'm constantly torn between... Um, I like the idea of things that make my life simpler... But I'm wary of things that do too much for me and are too magical because I want to understand what's happening in case I ever run into a problem and I need to troubleshoot it. You yep. know, I've sometimes been bitten by things that uh, do a lot for you, but then the minute you encounter some bug or error, there's just it's so hard to figure out what's going on. Um, but yeah, so CocoaPods is uh, for Coco like Gems is for Ruby, potentially. It's the mm-hmm. idea is that it's a, a tool that helps you add dependencies to external libraries or frameworks to your project in as pain-free a way as possible. Okay. Um, and certainly when I used it this time, it really was. So like CocoaPods, uh, the website's CocoaPods.org, and um, you can just fire up your terminal command line and do a gem install CocoaPods. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's a, a gem to download and install the CocoaPods tool itself, and then run pod setup, and it will initialize CocoaPods. Um and then once you've, that's something you only have to do once on your machine, and then each time you want to use it with a project to add a dependency. So in my case, I was wanting to add the dependency on Nimbus's web controller. Mm-hmm. Um, you just fire up your terminal in your Xcode project directory, create a, a simple text file called, um, sorry, I think it's just called pod file, um, but we'll put a link to the CocoaPods website where it's got yeah. the details. Um, and in my pod file, I just had a pod Nimbus slash web controller. So it would allow me to um, not just refer to the whole Nimbus project, but to refer to a particular module within Nimbus. Um, and it's smart enough to know that the web controller module within Nimbus relies upon the core module within Nimbus. So it would then install Nimbus core and Nimbus web controller. Um, and then just run... Um, pod install from the command line once you've created that pod file. And what it does is it um, creates an Xcode workspace file with a project for the dependencies you're referencing and a project for your original project, your app. So in my case, I had a Xcode project file for my app, um, ran pod install, and I ended up with an Xcode workspace file that had my app's project in it and a project for Nimbus um, core and Nimbus web controller. Uh, and build and run, compile straight away. Could just then, you know, drop a, a new view controller in my storyboard, tell it that it, it's some um, class is Nimbus's web controller class, and ready to go. Easy. Yeah. Yeah, I used it since we talked about it last time. Oh, cool. I thought it was quite easy, quite good. I haven't used it in the actual project yet, but uh, I think I will. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, it's certainly, like, I, I was um, certainly 
interested in Nimbus and I've seen a lot of stuff about CocoaPods around uh, when I do eventually get onto this uh, comic app that I was talking about last week I'll probably see if I can make use of it for, for, for a project I'm not one of those people who likes to sit around and build uh, you know test test stuff to uh, just to try out something new I generally try to find a place for it in a in an actual project before I do anything about it yeah it's definitely I, I... I do like to play with new technologies and stuff, but um, it's really nice to find a real reason to use it. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. So, I, I mean, the, the, some of that stuff certainly sounds useful to me as far as, uh, like, some of the stuff that, that Nimbus provides and definitely CocoaPods because, I mean, progressions, if I can uh, transfer that over to using something that manages all of its uh, external dependencies, it uses a fair few. Yeah. So... Look, I, I have... I would be remiss not to mention that there is some debate over CocoaPods. Okay. So, um, I, I personally like it. Uh, I know other developers that use it and like it. Um, however, I also know there are a bunch of people out there that think that it's... Uh, that don't like it, don't like its approach. So mm-hmm. um, I'll stick a link to a, de- a lengthy debate, warning it is lengthy, hundreds of posts back and forth on app.net about CocoaPods and its relative um, merits. Well, what's the gist of the argument against it? So I think... My summary of that debate was that the argument for it is that it makes it easy to add dependencies, and the argument against it is that it makes it easy to add dependencies. I think that was the the argument against it, was that if it's too easy... Well, no, it was in two parts. It doesn't let you do anything that you can't do with Git submodules anyway. Okay. It just makes it easier to do what you could achieve through Git submodules. And in making it so trivially easy might encourage you to add dependencies to a whole heap of projects without thinking through whether or not that's a good idea. And so you could end up seeing developers that might fully understand what the implications are linking to like dozens of, you know, of kitchen sink libraries because they want to use one particular class in it. Um, so I, I, to me, I'm not sure that that's a valid argument that, um, I think they're two separate arguments. Whether or not you should reference particular projects or have a certain number of dependencies or certain types of dependencies, I think is separate from whether or not you use a tool that makes adding those dependencies easy. Um, yeah, yeah. But I might not be summarising up the arguments well enough, so have follow this uh, this link to app.net and you'll see some interesting uh, Yeah, and uh, if, you've, if you've used CocoaPods before and you... Uh, and you have, or, or if you have a particular uh, point you would like to for us to voice uh, for or against CocoaPods, I guess get in touch and get in touch with uh, with us, and we'll, uh, I guess, follow it up. Yeah, definitely. Later on. Before I go too down too far down the path of using it for everything, tell me why yeah. it shouldn't be. Tell us why we shouldn't use it, because otherwise, I'm I'm going to use it. I'm going to do it. You can't stop me. Well, you can if you if you explain it rationally but yeah so that's that's all the follow up I had awesome awesome did you have any follow up Gail? I didn't alright well I guess we can probably start talking about actual about, about this week's uh, this week's topic then sounds good sounds good what are we talking about I don't know you, you're the one that came up with it jeez oh right <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah so uh, storyboards I thought we could talk about storyboards this week um Again, speaking of controversial topics for development, I'm aware that 
some people uh, love storyboards and others love to hate storyboards. Um, so I've got no idea what you guys, your take on it is. Um, I'll out myself. I love storyboards. Can't get enough of them. Uh, well, I don't. I don't use storyboards. Uh, not because I love or hate them, uh, but because I. I have a tendency to program everything. If I can do it in code, then that's typically how I do it. Uh, I don't use. I've, I didn't. I've never used nibs. Well, I have. I have used nibs, but I don't use. The, I've, I've tried not to be using them. Uh, I, I do everything. Everything code. So the argument is usually that storyboards are programming for dummies. Is it? Yes. Okay. And I'm I'm a dummy, so I like them a lot. <laughs> I use them all the time. They're great. I don't have a problem with people that use them. I just I've never used them myself. I've never found a, a reason to because I do a lot of stuff in code, and it seems and I mean progressions at this point in time is a fairly hefty project it's not like it's not something that i can lightly go uh, you know oh, i'll change it i'll change it to do this uh it that requires a lot of work especially mm. you know especially considering that like the, the storyboards are basically the understructure of you know yeah, an entire project definitely. uh i would basically have to rebuild everything yeah. with with storyboards and for that reason i'm pretty sure it's been a while since i looked at the iview source code for example but i don't think it uses storyboards. Uh, it started development before they existed, and um, I think the process of converting an existing project across is much more difficult than just adopting them in a new project. So my love of storyboards has come from newer projects that I've started post-iOS 5. Um, yeah, but I, I would struggle to go back now. I really, yeah, I find... I, I love the way that... Um, you can have I mean so I fully acknowledge there are drawbacks and one of the drawbacks is the um, monolithic nature of your storyboards so you have a single file where your apps um, user interface and the kind of flow or layout of sort of, um, different screens or views within your app sits that's one thing that I really like about it it makes it easy to sort of sit down and look at kind of graphically how your apps laid out which what main parts it's composed of, uh, how they're linked together. Um, and I find the process of creating... I, I find that I've been using storyboards a lot in sort of um, rapidly prototyping stuff with working with designers, for example. So you can very quickly, without necessarily writing any code, just hook up kind of, you know, whether or not your main way of navigating an iPhone app is tab bar controller. You can just stick a tab bar controller in there and stick some placeholder images in each tab get it running on a device and very quickly have an app that has the real tab bar controller and the real um, user intra interface sort of characteristics and feel of a tab bar controller, but just with placeholder content. Um, and then if you decide you want to switch to a navigation controller or whatever, it makes making those sorts of changes really straightforward. Um, but then, uh, yeah, I don't find still and then happy to continue using the storyboards in under actual development as well, just sort of swapping out those placeholders with real code piece by piece yeah well I mean especially in like in what you do with with because you do a lot of uh, development for clients um, I mean it makes sense that you should be able to uh, basically pull something together really quickly for them uh, and I mean it 
because uh, like you, you see a lot from you know from UX designers and stuff like that where they throw together wireframes and well this is kind of how it works but then the, the, it doesn't really have any kind of uh, doesn't have any f- real functionality to, to it or you can't, and you can't really like navigate it correctly so you know uh, some enterprising uh, Designers and developers have come up with uh, like apps that allow you to you know, take screenshots of wireframes and stuff like that to kind of get it, give it a feel of, of it working correctly. But even that's still a bit of a kind of a hacky way to do it. Uh, so it sounds like using storyboards is a very um, for, for building uh, for building prototypes mm. is a is a very efficient way of doing it because it means that you can literally start using that as the base for the actual application so yeah. you're not wasting any work I can't I can't really speak for all the other prototyping apps because I haven't used them more than just clicking around a little bit yeah. but I can't imagine anything would be much easier than just actually using storyboards you can do the same thing you know sketch something out take a picture of it or crop it just place it as a UI image on your, on your view you got you know a view of your app mm-hmm. you can put some invisible buttons on it over your buttons that you've already sketched and just link that up to another view and you got your segues i mean it's really nice and it's mm-hmm. using all the the default animations it's great yeah yeah it takes, I think, it takes literally 10 minutes yeah exactly i i've been trying to encourage um, sort of designers i work with as well to install xcode and just learn enough of the storyboard ui because you can do i think 90 percent without any code the areas I found that I've needed to write a little bit of code is um, if you want to see like a scroll view uh, whose content size is bigger than the screen, so that it actually scrolls. I don't think there's anywhere in the the GUI to specify the content size of a scroll view. I haven't found it, so I end up having to create an outlet to that scroll view and then write a little bit of code in view did load to set the content size of the of the scroll view. You guys yeah. Also, to uh, dismiss a modal view, right? You have to have a line of code for you that. You do have to have a line of code for that as well. Um, although, have you used unwind segues? I haven't. So, unwind segues, I just came across in the last week or so. Um, while we're talking about storyboards, I think it's worth mentioning a new um, book that's been published. It's an interactive book. I think it was created using iBooks Author. Um, and it's available on the iBooks store. It's called iOS Storyboards, an animated tour for iPhone and iPad developers by Daniel Steinberg. Um, he's also one of the guys that runs the Pragmatic, this um, iPhone development courses for the Pragmatic programmers. Oh, yeah. Um, yep. And he's written this book about storyboards. Um, and it's more than just about storyboards. It really takes you through developing an iPhone, iPad app from the ground up but using storyboards as the kind of way in. Um, and I've learned a fair bit, let's sort of, um, I guess, solidified the stuff I already knew about storyboards and learned some new stuff as well through looking through that book recently. And one of the new things uh, that came out in iOS 6 is um, unwind segues. So you may have seen in the storyboard file, there's a little green icon at the bottom of the view controller, there's like the you've got the view, and then you've got this little bar down the bottom with like three icons. With three icons, and one of them's green, and it says exit. Yeah. Uh, so that's a place where you can uh, drag a, uh, an action from, say, a transparent button or a button within the view down to uh, that icon, and it will let you hook it up to a method in the presenting view controllers class 
that you want to use to dismiss the view controller that you're wiring up. Um, so you'd write a method in, I say you have master detail views and uh, your master view, uh, someone selects an item from a list and then it presents a detail view of that. You'd write a method in the master view controller, uh, which was um, dismiss detail. And then in the detail view controller, you can drag a connection down to its little exit thing uh, to create an unwind segue. And when you mouse up on that little green icon, it would show you the available unwind segues and it would um, have the dismiss detail one that you declared in your, in your master view. So it's got to have a particular signature, which is I think it takes a segue parameter. So a method that's an IB action that takes a segue parameter and will then appear as an unwind segue. Um, and then, yeah, so basically it just allows you to sort of make that connection. You still have to write the line of code or the method to dismiss the, um, but it allows you to then sort of uh, connect that. Um, it doesn't, I th it's unclear to me whether the method actually needs to do anything. So it seems in the code samples I've seen, both on Apple in Apple's documentation and in this book, um, it seems to suggest that in that implementation of the unwind segue, you should dismiss, like write code to say self dismiss modal view controller animated yes or no. Um, but I've actually used it, and maybe I'm using it wrong, uh, with an empty method implementation, and it still dismisses it. So I think maybe it just gives you an opportunity to. Uh, intervene in the dismissing of the modally presented view if you want to say get some data from it or do something different or I could just be doing something really strange and it shouldn't work but it is if anyone knows please let me know if I'm doing the wrong thing um, yeah so that's unwind segues and in fact iOS 6 introduced another cool segue uh, have you guys used an embed segue? I haven't used any segues All right. like I've said I haven't used storyboards <laughs> So I haven't. I don't know what an embed segue is. Right. So uh, iOS five introduced the um, container view controller containment kind of paradigm, where uh, you could prior to iOS five, you know, the the idea was um, a view controller should be responsible for a whole screen full of content. Uh, sorry, a view controller that we develop as developers should be responsible for a whole screen full of content. Apple was allowed to do the navigation controller and tab bar controller and split view controller, um, which would have areas that yeah, combine different view controllers together. Um, and iOS 5 allowed us as third-party developers to write view controllers who could take responsibility for just partial screen. Uh, and that was done through view controller containment. So um, you'd write some code in a kind of parent view controller to explicitly add your child relationships to child view controllers and send appropriate messages to them about when you've added them and when you're going to remove them and I can never remember the documentation I think it will automatically call child view controller will was moved to parent and you have to explicitly call when it was removed or vice versa it's one way around so one of the to either you're adding a child view controller or removing it once explicitly, implicitly called for you or when you have to explicitly. Anyway, so you could do all of that code in iOS 5. iOS 6 uh, in storyboards brings um, a segue to embed a child view controller within a parent view controller for you. So you can basically do view controller containment without writing any code to achieve it. So you, um, in your 
you know, if you wanted to recreate Apple's um, split view controller, for example, um, you could just have a view and um, you drag onto the view a view container, view controller container, um, and size it, position it where you want uh, the view belonging to a child view controller to sit. Um, and then you drag another view controller onto your storyboard and then you drag a connection between that view controller container and the new view controller you've dragged on and that will create an embed segue uh, which embeds the child view, view controller's view within the parent view controller's view. Anyway, okay, it sounds really convoluted. Um, when I came across these in storyboards, I was thrilled because it makes it really easy to create this view controller containment um, and to kind of see what's happening in your storyboard, to sort of say, ah, I can see, okay, that view is composed of two others, uh, a view controller from here and a view controller from there. Yeah. Yeah, well, laying out things, laying out that sort of stuff graphically is, all, is, is always uh, very helpful because it's hard to... Sometimes it's hard to, to see what's going on when you when you're writing in you know, pages long code. Yeah. So I can I can understand the the benefits of that. But I mean, so we should probably spend some time discussing why you wouldn't use storyboards, because um I don't mean to suggest that you're crazy for not using storyboards. <laughs> no, not at all. Um, what I'd, li- you- I'd like to know the drawbacks because I haven't really encountered them. I'd imagine if you're doing anything other than the prescribed Apple way of doing things with tab bars and uh, split views and table views. And well, I can't, uh, I can't speak for reasons that you wouldn't use storyboards because I, I'm still yet to use them. Uh, but given that I do everything programmatically, I can, there are, I can put forward some points and you can, mm-hmm. you can tell me whether or not it's possible. Uh, one of the things that I do with uh, with my code is I have I have a, a category for uh, for UI view controller which basically takes uh, which allows me to add some additional methods to it. Uh, one of some of which I do for, like I I, I have uh, I've set up uh, some kind of custom looking modal type uh, animations which display as a, a modal on the screen uh, which just kind of overlay the the previous previous view I guess uh, and not always fully like they sometimes they do it partially uh, so I, I have a lot of custom animation that I do uh, like bringing in new views and that sort of thing so is that sort of stuff possible with storyboards? Yeah, it, it, it is it probably wouldn't do it as a category on view controller anymore but you do it as a custom segue okay. so that you can when you segue from one view controller to another you can choose whether that's modal whether it's push um, or custom and if it's custom you can just specify the custom subclass of UI storyboard segue that you would like to take a, take control of the segue and then basically you write a class that inherits from UI storyboard segue and implements a perf- method called perform and in that you have access to the um, source view controller and any of its, and its view and the destination view controller and its view. So you can do whatever and the custom animations you'd like in there. And then at the end of that, it's your responsibility to make sure you remove the destination view and present the... We'd have to... Oh, sorry, remove you... the source view and present the destination view. Okay. Um, whether or not you can do that, a custom segue 
that is modal and doesn't display full screen. I can't recall off the top of my head. I think I've only ever used them as full screen. Um, what, like, so as an example for one of the uh, one of the uh, types of modal views I use, uh, and I fully understand that you guys uh, listening can't actually see that I've pulled out my iPhone for, the, for, for everybody here but I will explain it and uh, and uh, it, it's very similar actually to something that Pages does uh, for, for iPhone in that when you uh, when a modal comes up, it only shows up like it's it's similar to the way that you get the modal that comes all the way out the screen and replaces the view from the bottom of the screen, slides in, mm. um, so to speak. Um, but this one kind of stops half halfway, where it only comes up, and you can still see the the view behind it, uh, which is useful. And it's used in pages for being able to edit the. Uh, like the the styles on on the, right, on the yeah, text, yeah. so you can actually yeah, in pages right. select the text and and still do all the all the bits and pieces. Uh, in in mine, I use it for mostly for being able to change uh, the font size of, of your yeah. charts. Oh right, and it does actually update. And you live. can update yeah. live, and you can see you can actually see what's going on in like the top. I guess two thirds of the screen, yeah. and the bottom the bottom um, part is is like your is your controls to be able to change. Yeah. The stuff. So look, a custom segue wouldn't allow you to do that because, um, at least not that I'm aware of. Because I think that the, once the custom segue is completed, the idea is that the view controller that you're looking at is gone. Is the destination one and the source one is gone? Yeah. Um, so were you not still allowing changes to update live on the sort of one that's sitting in the background. Um, an approach I've taken is to you take before presenting the modally presented uh, view controller. Um, I'd take a screenshot of the, the what's on the screen, um, pass that image to the destination view controller so that it's got a image of what was on the previous screen that it can use to display on the back as a background and then display a semi-opaque layer on top so it kind of would look like you're still looking at the yeah. previous view um, but it's just a static image you wouldn't be able to, and you wouldn't be able to, to update yeah. Jelly's example here though that looks like view containment doesn't right, it? Right, exactly, that's exactly what I was going to say yeah. that, it's, that would, you could do that using view controller containment where, okay. and you can an, with view controller containment as well you can animate the size of the container the container views so you could have a view controller that always has kind of two views embedded in it and only when you kind of toggle that edit mode does it animate the size of the bottom one up so, so it's always sitting there it's just zero ready yeah pixels or whatever off screen or off screen yes but i think there are some good reasons not to use storyboards or some real some challenges with them one of them is to that whole sort of monolithic file thing in that particularly if you're working in a team with a lot of other developers and a big app that has a lot of screens in it, anytime you touch any of your screens in your app at all, it modifies the storyboard file. And the file format is such that um, I think it's XML-based um, and where it's got relationships between um, one entity and a list of other related entities in the storyboard kind of underlying data model, I think those relationships are often unordered. So sometimes just doing a slight, like causing the storyboard file to become dirty and then having to save it will result in your storyboard file changing substantially from what it was previously just because things are randomly reordered because yeah. the order is unimportant. 
in terms of programmatically, but in terms of then merging your source code with some other one and having to see what was actually changed, it can be a real nightmare. Like you, I was working on a project that just had another developer, one other developer working on it at the time, and the number of times that um, you were having to unpick someone else's changes to a storyboard and figure out, you know, the number of times I would actually just revert my changes to the storyboard merge the code with his and then reapply my changes manually to the storyboard because it was easier than actually dealing with the merge. It was just ridiculous. Um, so I don't really know a good way around that. Um, you can have more than one storyboard file for your project. So if you've got an app uh, that, and you can um, break up sort of who's working on which bit in terms of, uh, say, it's a tab bar-based app and there are four tabs, you could say, okay, you're on tab one, I'm on tab two, whatever. Then you could actually have it so that the, the have like sub-storyboard files. So that you've just got one storyboard file per top-level kind of section of the app. Um, that's one way of dealing with it. Yeah, it's, it, is, it is a hassle. But that, I mean, that still doesn't that still doesn't take care of uh, if you're, if there are several people working on one particular feature in a, yeah. in a team. Then you, there's no which real is, way around it. It's uh, just which amazing. can can be how uh, like big large teams work on yeah. work on apps. You guys just need to learn to take turns. <laughs> I get the storyboard on Tuesday. Yeah. You get the storyboard exactly. on Wednesday. <laughs> so, so. And one of the other things uh, that I struggle a bit with is. Um, in code, it's really clear what's doing what. Mm-hmm. So if, if you're doing all the UI stuff in code uh, and something looks a particular way, like there's a view that is red and you want it to be blue, you can very easily find the line of code that's making it red and change it so it makes it blue. If you've got storyboards, you end up in a situation where some of the stuff that affects how things appear is in the storyboard and some of it is elsewhere. And then it gets a bit confusing as to you see something that is red and you want to blue and you've got to go, okay, where's the thing that's making it red? Is it a property in the storyboard? Is it a line of code in in my view controller? Is it a line of code in my custom view? Is it a line of code in a UI appearance proxy? Is it, you know, you've got to start digging around. Yeah, um, to, to get around that, I usually, if it's something I know that I'm going to want to change in code at some point, you know, uh, color or something like that. I just purposely use really gaudy colors in in the storyboard. All right, so it's like a visual reminder to yourself. Like this is this not is in how code. it looks. So it's something in Cubs doing. Yeah, that. that's what I do. But yeah, yeah, it's, I think it's a really good approach. It is a problem. Um, and I also struggle a bit with uh, is only there's certain things you do need code for, um, and then I get cranky that my storyboard doesn't look like my app does because you know there's a view that has code making it styling it a particular way and I view that my storyboard is just a little white square yeah like but I know I wish that there was some uh, like Xcode would actually run your view and get it to draw and then take a screenshot of it to put in your storyboard and maybe like fade it out or something so you could see it's clear that it was so when you're using like when you're using a custom Controls and stuff like that, they just appear as, as, as a white. white box. Yeah. So it's the same, it's the same, that sort of thing is the same thing that happened uh, when I was using using nibs. Uh, everything, like any sort of custom control, yeah. like or custom view, would just render as a white box. And yeah. it was. So, I mean, over time, as you end up with more sort of 
custom drawing and complexity in, in your app, the storyboard starts to look more and more just like a sequence of white boxes connected together, which is less meaningful when you're looking at it at a glance. Okay. So my, my understanding here is that, uh, just to kind of summarize, I guess, is that storyboards are really useful if you're wanting to prototype an app really quickly. Uh, it because it shows you it shows you the layout of your app uh, and can and can render everything as if it as like in a in a kind of uh, a flowchart manner. Uh, <clears throat> but it becomes less useful when the project is uh, is large because of um, because of the hefty size of the of the storyboard file. Although you can get around that with uh, with by using you know, several different storyboards. Uh, Another issue is that if you're using a lot of custom-based controls or custom views and that sort of stuff, it becomes uh, less useful because essentially it's a series of white boxes uh, that don't really like. The, and really, the only benefit that you're getting from from it there is then is the segways and that sort of thing. Mm. Uh, and using it in large teams is problematic because of the nature of the storyboard files and being able to merge those into. Uh, into the like your version control uh, and you better be using version control because it's uh, super important uh, so you'd be using that with a t- like and version control is particularly helpful with teams so uh, so not being not being kind of very well compatible compatible com- compatible uh, with with version control is is kind of a, a large yeah problem. It, is, it is a real hassle um, and I think it affects a lot of people. But yeah, I think that's a good summary. Okay. I guess, so briefly, I think, because we're probably running out of time for today, yep. um, something else to touch on is the availability of storyboards in different versions of iOS and how that might factor into your decision about which version to target. Or it's 5.0, right? Yeah, so 5.0 uh, storyboards came in, and then in 6.0 you got um, container view controllers like the embed segue and the unwind segue and auto layout and auto layout which we have I think that's a whole another discussion maybe a couple <laughs> um, yeah so well you'd be crazy to target 4 4.0 right I don't think there's any reason to target iOS 4 anymore uh, so which so counterpoint could be I, and I've lost track of this I have to admit um, the, I, the devices that Apple currently sell can they all run five? Yes. They all, like, all of them can run five. Yeah. And um, almost all can run six. They're still selling the iPad. The, uh, everything they can sell runs uh, runs iOS 6 off the top of my head. They don't sell the iPad 1 anymore, which is the only device that they sell that doesn't run it as far as... Sorry, the, the only device that doesn't really run it. Uh, everything that ran five except for that was up, upgraded to six. Uh and the installed base of iPad ones varies obviously around the world, but it depends on what your app is doing, and it depends on I think whether you or not you've got an existing user base. Yeah. If you've got an existing user base, and you can tell that there's there's uh, you know a certain percentage of them are using iPad ones, uh, then it's probably not feasible for you to be uh, shifting your um, shifting your app to target uh, six at this point in time. But so, if you're starting something new, then there's no reason why you couldn't start yeah, with iOS 6. So I, everything I'm doing at the moment, I'm starting with 6. Um, potentially, I'm doing some kids' stuff, and there's a question mark over needing to target 5 so that the iPad 1 
will still work. So there are, you know, I think in that situation, there are a lot of people who have probably purchased a newer iPad and have handed their iPad one on to their children. Yeah. A lot of kids. I think think that's a good example of a point where you would want to target five. Yeah. And there aren't many examples that I can think of. Well, I mean, I um, I target five because, uh, because I mean, my app is for a lot of musicians. A lot of musicians have picked up uh, an iPad to be able to display their uh, songs. And a lot of the people that I know that use my app uh, have, I, I, I've had once, uh, mm. and the percentage is is, is around fifteen percent. All right. I don't want to. I don't want to uh, to you know because a lot of the a lot of people have gone. Oh, you know what would be awesome? Being able to have a digital version of, of music. Yeah. So they rush out and get. And iPad they rush one. out. They they all went out and got an iPad one, but nobody gives up there. Like it's it's yeah. not the sort of. Uh, Device that people you know upgrade regularly. That like, no, if it's like meeting your needs, yeah. So, uh, you know, and so the, a lot of people are still are still using iPad ones, which means that for certain situations, like you know, using it for a music device or using it for kids, I think it's it's important to be able to still target that. Yeah. Uh, that being said, I have a I have a, a plan in place to be able to uh, move on to iOS six uh, as uh, as soon as I'm, I'm capable of doing that. So I think the sort of take home message there is uh, try and understand for your particular app what your potential users are using in terms of devices. Uh, get as much data as you can about the the devices and operating systems that people have got using. So if you've got an existing app, get stats about what your users are. Um, if you don't have an existing app, try and find other stats that are relevant to your app. So on that front, um, Stuart Hall, who's a Australian developer um, behind the Discover Music iPhone and iPad apps, mm-hmm. um, he's got a blog at stuartkhall.com, um, links in the show notes, um, and recently he wrote an article about... Um, when iOS 6.1 was released, they had a look at the stats of... And I, look, I can't remember from the top of my head, but it was some definition of active users. Uh, and after three days, 31% of their active users had updated to 6.1. Um, and overall, 90% of their users are on iOS 6 or later. Three, um, three days, I, that's quicker than I got to 6.1. Yeah, so th- well, there's only 31%. Still, three days for, a, you know, roughly a third of yeah. your users to... Um, so I guess, you know, they're really aware of who their users are um, and what operating system they're on. I think it's a good data point for just generally. It seems like iOS users upgrade pretty quickly. Um, but, yeah, I'd sort of say look at, at the stats that are closely represent your target users as possible. Um, use that as a guide. And that's all I've got today. All right. Well, that's all we've really got time for, I guess. Uh, if you'd like to check out the show notes that we will put up, uh, you can do so by uh, jumping onto the website. You can find them at mobilecouch.co forward slash two because this is the second episode. Uh, if you'd like to get in touch with us, give us any feedback, or if you would like to uh, to tell us why we shouldn't use storyboards, uh, then you can do that as well. Uh, you can jump on our website again for that, mobilecouch.co forward slash contact. Uh, if you'd like to get in touch with any of us individually, uh, you can do that uh, via Twitter. And Jake? Uh, I am Jay McMullen, J-M-A-C-M-U-L-L-I-N, uh, both on Twitter and app.net. And Caleb? T-H-R-S-N. 
through some un- unpronounceable un- the unpronounceable twitter like, name like prince yeah uh and i am jelly bean soup uh on twitter uh thank you guys for listening i hope you have enjoyed this episode we will see you again in two weeks time for the next episode of my bulk ouch